But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. So I was looking for an introduction to this morning's sermon, which will be preached primarily from our gospel text. So I invite you to turn to page 814 in that pew Bible in front of you to Matthew chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 9, and to follow along as the sermon moves along. I was looking for a perfect introduction, and the Lord gave that to me uh, this um, past Saturday. So there, uh, Levi and I were coming from a birthday party at a trampoline park. There we were, coming from a birthday party at a trampoline park. And of course, our gospel reading here is on Matthew and our Lord calling Matthew uh, to follow him. And there, Levi and I were exiting this trampoline park, one that was on 280, and um, I am walking towards the door. The door is a glass door. You can see outside, and there I see a Matthew themselves, Matthew McConaughey, walking, coming this way, and I thought to myself, that's Matthew McConaughey, and I'm not going to say anything to him because everyone probably says something to him, so I opened the door for him, and he came in. He said, in this Texas accent, you know, you know, thank you. And I said, Levi, all right, come on, Levi. And we left, and I was like, whoa, this is crazy and weird to see him in Birmingham. And then it hit me. I could have had the perfect illustration had I actually invited the man to church, uh, which I didn't do, and I could have. So there it is, the perfect introduction. Now, I say that to say this. What is the point of my homily this morning? The point of my homily is that we are, uh, we are sinners ourselves. We are called, though, by God's mercy and grace to be evangelists, all of us, to everyone that is around us. That's the point, and I want to make that point through looking at our gospel text, through looking at who, looking at who Matthew uh, was, what his um, profession itself evoked, what Jesus' interaction with him was like, and what it was like to be a Pharisee at that moment in time and what they were thinking. So, here we go. Just before our text in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, we see in chapter 8 that Jesus has encountered a paralytic. And you probably recall this interaction because it's a very famous one. Jesus um, encounters a paralytic, and um, Jesus tells the Pharisees, what is harder to do? To forgive this man's sin or to say what? Get up and walk. Get up and walk. So we'll try that again. What's harder to say your sins are forgiven or get up and, and walk? And the implication is that it's more important, more difficult for someone to actually forgive sins like God forgives our sins than it is to, to perform a miracle as it were. And this is the first interaction one of the first interactions of our Lord with the Pharisees. And of course, when we get to chapter 9 here, the, action, the interaction just continue to, um, we might say, go downhill from there. The opposition to Jesus himself begins to grow amongst the Pharisees. 
And here we come to our passage. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, you know that Matthew's other name was… Matthew's other name was Levi. Well done. Yes, Levi. His other name was Levi. There are some uh, church historians, uh, some biblical scholars that say um, that actually uh, Matthew, who's referred to as Levi in, in two of the other Gospels, actually went by Matthew to try to distance himself from his old name as a publican, as a tax collector. He tried to create some distance there. But here we have Matthew, a deplorable, a traitor, one of the worst kinds of sinners according to Jews and to Romans alike. He was a tax collector. One commentator writes this, by Jewish law, a tax collector was barred from the synagogue. Did you know this? A tax collector could not even go to the synagogue, barred from the synagogue. Continuing the quote here, he was included with things and with beasts as unclean. And Leviticus chapter 20 verse 5 was applied to all tax collectors. He was forbidden to be a witness in any case. Robbers, murderers, and tax gatherers were all classed together. Matthew was, in the mind of, of Jews at this time, basically unredeemable because of his vocation. He was viewed as scum of the earth because, you see, he as a Jewish tax collector, were, he was working for the occupiers, for the Romans. Most likely, he had bought this position. So, he, he was working for the enemy that was, you know, ruling over the area of the Holy Land. And not only did he probably buy this position, but he made his money through uh, usury of his own people, which again was breaking the command in the Torah. He's taking more interest from his own people to, to pad his own pockets. He was despicable in the eyes of Jews. But you see, these tax collectors were also seen as deplorable by the Romans. I mean, you think about this, Romans would have looked at Jewish tax collectors as what? You're, you're a bunch of traitors to your own people. I mean, we're going to use you to collect our money, and you can do whatever you want on top of that, but you are a traitor. Like, there wouldn't have been much trust between Romans and Jewish tax collectors. Uh, anyway, so, so hated by both Jews and Romans. Now, um, Matthew, as I mentioned, would have been one of the least of these, not because he didn't have cash on hand, but because he was a traitor. Now, as you know, I'm from a small town in Oklahoma uh, called Meeker, and we still don't have a stoplight. We only still have a stop sign, one of them. Um, and the two police officers will set near there to see if you're rolling through uh, that stop sign, and they'll get you. Now, I remember when I was in middle school, I was in eighth grade, and, and the boy I'm talking about was a, was a freshman, so that means he was in Jennifer's grade because she was a year ahead of me in, in school, five months older. So uh, his name, um, I'll call him Taylor because that wasn't his name, but Taylor. Taylor was a good man. He had went to Meeker all of his life until his freshman year when he decided to transfer to our rival town. He transferred to our rival town, Prague, Oklahoma, founded by my people, by the Czechs. But when you found um, 
uh, like a Slavic, you know, place in, in Oklahoma. You don't call it Prague, you call it Prague. And so, anyway, uh, Prague, Oklahoma. And he transferred, and he was a great athlete. And I remember when we heard word, we got wind of his transfer. He was dead to us, dead to us now. Not only was he dead to us, but on the gridiron, on the basketball court, if you could take some cheap shots, you would try to do so because he was an absolute uh, traitor to us, and at least that's how we saw it. Now, of course, Taylor was, was, was a good man and a good young man, but we saw him as a traitor. This is how Matthew functioned. One of the holy apostles, a traitor, a despicable man, a sinner, a thief. Now, Jesus looks at this sinner, this thief, And what does he say at the end of verse 9? He says, follow me. And Matthew got up and he left the tax booth. You see, Matthew was pierced by the words of the word. That is the lowercase words of the capital word of God. He spoke to Matthew and he said, follow me. And Matthew got up. I envision him like, you know, being behind a booth. Um, and, and he's you know, collecting all this stuff. Here comes Jesus of Nazareth, and he looks him square in the eye, and he says, follow me. And it's like he just dropped the money, and he dropped the bags, and he got out from underneath the booth, and he's probably thinking, what am I doing? But I feel compelled, and he follows Jesus of Nazareth. And he ends up being, of course, um, one of uh, the holy disciples and apostles. Follow me. Dale Bruner writes in his commentary, this is so good, listen, The Word, that is a capital word of God, Jesus, um, the Word is invested with nuclear power to tear persons away from all that was most precious to them before, namely fishing and boats and even their parents, or from all that had debased them, money and power. The surest way to break the grip of of creature comforts and economized mentalities is the discipling words of Jesus. His word made a difference. Many church fathers, if you read them, consider that Matthew's sudden obedience was actually one of the miracles that are recounted in Matthew's gospel. Many church fathers were like, no, this, this actually is more than just a call to discipleship. It is that, but it is a miracle that this tax collector, this miserable offender, would follow Jesus himself. Where the word of God is, miracles occur. So, us and Matthew, how do we line up with Matthew? Well, what a beautiful picture of the mercy of God. You see, mercy is not defined as giving, sorry, um, is defined as not giving someone something that they deserve. That's what mercy is. Not giving someone something that they actually deserve What did Matthew deserve? He had forsaken the laws of Yahweh. He had forsaken his own people. He deserved death and punishment. But Jesus had mercy upon him. He didn't punish him. He didn't zap him dead for his disobedience to the Torah. No. He didn't didn't, uh, take him out. He had mercy on him. But then he gave him the other side of that coin, one side being mercy, the other side being grace. He offered him a gift. And I don't want us to miss this. Our Lord gave to Matthew, this is grace, he gave him something that he didn't deserve, and that was the right to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, the second person 
of the Trinity, mercy and grace given to Matthew. Now, in our Romans uh, passage, chapter 4, we've got this beautiful uh, section towards the end. I'm going to read from Romans 4, verse 16. Just listen here. Paul says, that is why it depends on faith. And of course, the that refers to his notion of, of, uh, of Abraham following God by faith. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see, before Jesus' encounter with Matthew, in some ways, Matthew didn't exist, as it were, being in Christ, being in salvation. And after our Lord says, follow me, and Matthew in obedience followed, it's like, it's like there was a new creation coming out from behind that tax booth. Jesus had done a work in which uh, something that was not existent was made to exist. That is, a new man, one that was in Christ, in obedience to him. Calling of Matthew was not only a calling, it was a conversion, all in one. John Calvin writes of Jesus' calling, he says, in Matthew's person as a tax collector, Jesus teaches us that the calling of us all depends not on the merits of our own righteousness, but on God's sheer generosity. It's God's sheer generosity that we are saved. It was Jesus' sheer generosity to come alongside Matthew and to get up to that booth and to say, follow me, an act of generosity, an act of mercy and grace that Matthew followed in obedience. You know, when we see God as being generous, as being merciful and gracious, this ought to move us to gratitude. You see, if I ask you whether or not you thought that Matthew, the holy apostle, had gratitude in this moment, would you say yes when he got up and and left? Would you say that he had gratitude? I think we would probably all agree that he he had gratitude. He had gratitude. How do we know that? Because he followed. Because he followed our Lord's call on his life to follow him. Verse 10, follow along with me if you would. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. St. John Chrysostom of the 4th century, church father, says um, this, that, that Matthew, um, let me just quote him, he says this, by this, that is Jesus eating with sinners and Matthew inviting, it seems, Jesus into his home, This all teaches us that at all times and and all places, our actions may be made means by God for the salvation for the world. What a beautiful thing. Most scholars believe that Jesus was invited to Matthew's home. And I think, at least in my mind, I've always thought of it in, in terms of he comes into Matthew's home 
And then a bunch of like sinners are like, yeah, we kind of heard about this guy. We're going to come and we're going to recline at table with just Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, but some commentators say, actually, what Matthew may have done is he may have, because of his conversion and his call, went and talked to his friends who were in the same business, who were sinners like him, and said, hey, come with me, come to my house, we're going to set things up, Jesus of Nazareth is coming into our home today. So Matthew's first obedient call to evangelism, it seems, is that he invited other sinners like himself to the table with our Lord. What a beautiful means of evangelism. He didn't just pre- he didn't preach to them as it were. He said, no, come into my home. And it was there that Jesus met the others. But Jesus reclining at table with sinners draws out a tension within Scripture, this tension to be kind of in the world but not of the world. I mean, we, we feel this in the church today. So I want to move now to the Pharisees' response. For the Pharisees took holiness and devotion to God very seriously, and that is, that is a wonderful thing and a good thing. But the problem is that when our pursuit of purity goes unchecked, and when I mean unchecked, that is our pursuit of holiness is gone unchecked where we, we begin to view ourselves not as sinners, but fully as saints. When it goes unchecked in that way, what ends up happening is that we are then blinded to what God is trying to do with sinners in the world. And our knee-jerk reaction becomes, let us huddle together as perfectly well-formed Christians, and let's just, let's Benedict option this thing. And let me start a capital campaign for a commune somewhere near Hansville, uh, Alabama. It's beautiful out there. We'll just all go and live out there. No, that's not fully the call. Let me tease that out for a moment. I've been asked a few times in my tenure here as senior pastor, why don't you preach like full-blown kind of revivalistic messages on a Sunday morning? Fair question. Now, I always want the gospel to be clear to, to us every single Sunday morning, but I don't re- preach revivalist messages here. Why? Because we come as Christians to this place, as believers, as disciples of Jesus, to hear the gospel again, to be nourished, to be taught, to be strengthened, to feast on the body and blood of our Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then to go out into the world where evangelism takes place, where you, like Matthew, can invite miserable offenders whom uh, you think are beyond salvation into your life a bit so that they will see Jesus himself and then be moved once the Holy Spirit comes upon them and says, you need to follow this Jesus. They will. That doesn't happen here in this, in the church, as it were, it happens in your life, in your home. Matthew's setting an example for all of us in terms of evangelism. But you see, we can fall into the Pharisees' trap. It's us, our holiness, we've got the right beliefs, these people over here, they're sinners, they're completely wrong, they're terrible. And yes, all that is in fact true. I mean, think of groups, of groups of people that hold sets of ideologies that we disagree with. I mean, we're in the month of June, by the way. Groups of people that we disagree with vehemently about things. We say, no, no, this is not of God. It's of, it's of the devil. This mindset is of the devil. We, would, we say that, and we're right about that. But here's the deal. We as Christians too often, and at least in my mind, I may be off here, 
we're almost like, okay, they're, they're wrong, and they are. Of course, that's the truth. They're sinners. Here we are as saints. Let's bridge the divide. No, no, no. Matthew, Matthew invites them into his home to encounter Jesus. Let me draw a parallel between um, their salvation, the sinners that came and recognized Jesus and repented from their sins and from their horrible ideologies and turned to God, how, how that happens with the incarnation. You see, God became man. He participated in our humanness in order to save us. So those that we believe that are beyond the pale, if they don't hear the gospel and the good news from us, who are they going to hear it from? How are they going to have access to Jesus in his saving work? You see, for Matthew, there's a movement there. But the Pharisees would have none of it. But we see Jesus' response, which is beautiful in uh, verse 12. Actually, the Pharisees in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher, your rabbi, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12. But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Have you thought about the fact that Jesus and the Pharisees agreed that these sinners were sick? They agreed on that. They agreed on the fact that they were sick. But Jesus is saying, that's the very reason why why I'm having them at the table, why I'm coming to them, so that I might bring healing to them. Do we have any physicians in the in the house, in the nave? I know we've got one. We've got an um, opto- optometrist. We've got one. Okay. I mean, can you imagine, like, physicians who refuse to participate in the life of the patient, that is, hearing what the symptoms are, dealing with, um, with the problems of the patient, saying, no, we're actually not going to do that. Are they actually practicing healing? Are they able to heal anybody? No. They do it by coming close and being near them. But it's also true that when a physician is near to someone who is sick, there are levels of precautions that do have to be taken. So, for instance, if you're a physician dealing with someone who has Ebola in Africa, you don't just, you know, get really close and and be really careless. No, you don't want to be pulled in yourself or infected yourself. There's There's a healthy distance. But the point is, the physician that loves the people, The physician that wants to bring healing participates in speaking the truth in moving someone to healing. And that person can leave and say no, or they can assent and say, and consent and say, yes, I believe what you are trying to give to me is good. So Jesus gives this kind of common sense notion that that physicians, they go to the sick. And Pharisees, you believe that they are actually sick, so I'm here. That's what we should be doing. But he didn't draw just on this quote-unquote kind of common sense ethic, as it were. Jesus, in dealing with the Pharisees, goes a little bit further. For the Pharisees wanted to know the Word of God, the Torah, the prophets. Where can this, where can this logic be found? And we, we read it in our Old Testament this morning from Hosea chapter 6. He quotes Hosea chapter 6. Our Lord says at the end of our section... Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. I'm going to close with a few thoughts here, beloved. 
The first is um, from uh, theologian and commentator uh, Matt, Matthew Henry. He's, uh, he's got tons. That you, can, you can find his stuff all over the place. He's not an Anglican, but every now and then he has some really good stuff. And here's what he says. The more sensible any sinners are of their sinfulness, and he uses that word sensible, that is knowing about their own sin. The more sensible any sinners are of their own sinfulness, the more he or she will welcome Christ in his gospel. But those who consider themselves righteous by their own works will sooner be sick of their Savior than sick of their sins. Let me say that again. The more sensible any sinners are of their own sinfulness, the more welcome will Christ and his gospel be to them. Those who consider themselves righteous by their own works will will sooner be sick of their Savior than sick of their sins. And we run the risk of doing that when we do not realize that we, like Matthew, have sinned but have been called by grace through faith to be obedient to follow Jesus himself, to follow him. My other kind of concluding thought here this morning is this. The way that we live our lives by inviting those who are sinful, who do not know the truths of God and of Holy Scripture, the more that you can rub up against them, the more that you can talk to those who do not know the truth, um, the better the chance of their salvation. Wally Mertz uh, one time asked me, he goes, Father Michael, do you have any friends that are not Christians? Um, And I was embarrassed to respond, I don't think so. I don't think so. So let me encourage you, do not buy into this fear that that getting to know someone who who is ungodly in the sense of does not believe in God, does not believe in the ethic that we hold, get near to them, pray for them, love them, show them the truth so that the Holy Spirit may indwell them and bring them in to true faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But also be careful. Be connected to our Lord in prayer. Be connected to the teachings of the church found in Scripture. And then in freedom, imagine yourself as being given by the Spirit power to go to those who do not know, to touch them, to bring healing to their life. Because, beloved, if we don't do it, who else is going to go? Who else is going to do it? And it starts with simple obedience. Just as Matthew invited his friends who did not know the Lord into his home, I invite you to do the same. And I want to close in prayer with with the prayer that many of you pray every day. Um, At least you have the option for praying every day in the morning at morning prayer. I want you to listen to these words as I conclude. Let us pray. It's a prayer from Mission, from the Book of Common Prayer, morning prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, You stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen.